as I stare into my computer screen, I see people celebrating. Unmasked faces gathered at weddings and restaurants. But these people aren't in the United States. They are in countries like Australia and Taiwan, which have been able to effectively eradicate COVID-19 due to mask wearing, contact tracing, and an effective response carried out by government officials. I think the hardest part about COVID-19 is knowing that it, it didn't have to be this way. We didn't have to reject the need for wearing masks. We didn't need to downplay the severity of the virus until it had gotten so bad that some hospitals had to convert their entire establishment into taking care of COVID-19 patients. We didn't need to have 16 million infected and almost 300,000 dead with ICUs overrun and overworked healthcare providers considering quitting their jobs or even worse, their life. But just recently, on December 11th, the FDA approved the first vaccine for COVID-19. It's a true glimmer of hope. But that glimmer was tempered by the fact that this hope came in the vessel of a vaccine. Honestly, I was hoping for a miracle drug. Something not so bogged down by years of politics and misinformation. Vaccines may be the most politicized and controversial mechanisms to which we intervene medically. And surprisingly, they're one of the safest interventions as well. Patients who develop cancer easily accept the notion of significant side effects that are associated with chemotherapy because they know that's the treatment. But when it comes to vaccines, there's a profound mistrust. We hearken back to the distant yet relatable examples of this mistrust. The Tuskegee syphilis experiment, which targeted black males under the guise of free healthcare, yet watched as syphilis ravaged their bodies even after penicillin was discovered in 1947. This was all conducted under the United States Public Health Service and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. We remember the theft of cells from Henrietta Lacks, or just the prevailing notion and the prevalence of the devaluation of black lives for scientific discovery. So what am I to do? Am I to try to convince you to take this vaccine and put all the years of medical mistrust and your own warranted skepticism about the vaccine behind you? Honestly, I don't know. I just know that we need to be having these conversations. And this is not me trying to tell you how to run your life, but I just hope this podcast would serve as a foundational resource that might help you understand what you're saying yes to, or perhaps no to. So with that, <laughs> let's start the show. Uh, we spend the next hour with Edward Nirenberg, and we talk everything from vaccine skepticism, safety, efficacy, and much, much more. Stay tuned. Hey guys, this is Chuma. 
and you are listening to The Silent Doc. Today we are spending some time with a pretty awesome guest. Uh, His name is Edward Nirenberg, and we're going to be discussing all things vaccines. So Edward is a graduate of Cornell University. Uh, He received his degree in biological sciences with a focus in biochemistry. Um, He also studied macrophages in an immunology lab and now runs pretty awesome website called Deplatform Disease, where he discusses various topics, including disease, immunology, and of course, vaccines. Um, Edward, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for being here. Um, so I guess before we dive into the the wildly politicized and complex um, topic that is vaccines. Um, I guess I just want to get an opportunity to get to know you a little bit better. Mm-hmm. Um, so I see that you went to Cornell. Are you from New York originally or what, where, where did you, you come from? Uh, I've lived in New York my entire life, but I'm from New York City and Cornell is like pretty far upstate. Um, but yeah, um, born and raised here in the U.S. Nice, nice. Okay. Um, so given that, you know, the pandemic has basically spanned I mean, really, I think it really hit since like March. Um, wh- what have you been doing to keep yourself sane in these these wild times? You know, I, I, I thought about this um, and this answer is going to sound crazy, but the thing I find most calming actually is just reading the new papers about COVID and seeing everything that we're learning because it gives me like a sense of control, basically, that like hmm. we're getting there towards a solution. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, so do you have, I guess outside of like science stuff, do you have, um, hobbies or do you have things that, that you do to sort of, I guess, break the, uh, the intensity? Uh, well, since the pandemic started, I've been really hardcore into Pokemon Go. Um, okay. Okay. Yeah. Which I, I, I tried it in the beginning when it like first came out and I got bored of it, but like with the pandemic, there's like nothing else to do. I mean, they're stuck at home all day. I can go outside, but. Yeah, I actually, so I heard about it, but I, I didn't really, you know, delve into it. Is it almost like a, like you have to, you actually have to go outside and like it changes the outside world and makes it so you have missions out there or something? How does that? Uh, well, I, I mean, you can do a lot from your own home, actually. I think like the satellites or whatever they used to like see where you are, aren't like fully tracking. So sometimes from my house, it like says I moved around a lot and it finds Pokemon for me. But basically, oh. <laughs> like, um, you get uh, you get like a virtual map, and, and like you're a trainer in the game, and you just encounter wild Pokemon, and then there's Team Rocket, and you can battle them, and like they have Shadow Pokemon, and you can rescue those, uh, and there are gyms that like you can um, beat basically, and you play against other players. It's a it's a neat concept, I think. Yeah, yeah. It's also like um, I feel like I've noticed that I don't know. I guess since COVID hit. Um, you just don't really have all the social avenues that you once had. Uh, like even within our I don't know, program, like residency, you know, mm-hmm. I remember talking to one of the interns and like, she was like, yeah, well, I guess I've met about five or six other residents in a program of like, you know, 70 people. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, mm-hmm. honestly, I was like floored because uh, that, that was just not my experience. Um, yeah. Okay. Um, so I guess, uh, some other things, do you have a, just random stuff? Do you, do you have a favorite like movie or, um, or even if not a favorite, cause favorite stuff, I actually don't like favorite questions. Is there a, a recent 
I guess, like film or TV show that you watched all that you were like, wow, this is something that people need to, to check out? You know, what, the thing that's coming to mind for me is that um, Airplane, I think it's from 1970 or it might be 1980. It's just like, it's the, it, the it's a comedy, but like the, the sense of humor is just so stupid. Like you just can't help but laugh. Like, um, there's also a sequel and in, in the sequel, like the guy like goes on the airplane. He just straight up like buys a bomb in the airport gift shop. Like, it's just like, it's really nonsensical and they have like really dumb puns. Uh, like they talk about the guy, he has a drinking problem and like they show him drinking and the problem is like, he can't get the drink into his mouth. He like, he's pouring them over like his face. Like, it's just like, it's like, it's just like a bunch of really dumb jokes. Um, <laughs> nice. Nice. Okay. Airplane. Um, nice. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and then I actually, I really like this question too. Sometimes I ask people, um, what's the best advice you've ever received? Oh, wow. You're really putting me on the spot there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or uh, not even, I mean, I guess you could say like, you know, what's a piece of advice that sort of stuck with you? I'll give you mine. Um, so this is a really random and short. I, I worked with, um, there's a, a Dr. Pittman at, at Emory mm-hmm. uh, who does like a lot of our medical education stuff. And uh, I remember one day I was like having a really rough day. Like we had he was like a patient had passed away or, you know, it was just a really, really rough day. And he was just like, cheer up, kid. It's worse than you think. <laughs> um, and, and for some reason, that's always stuck with me, you know, that yeah, like. It's kind of wise, though. I, I get it. I got to say that that is wise. You know, like there's always one, it could be worse. And there's probably somebody else who's going through something that's that's worse than what you're going through right now. So mm-hmm. cheer up. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah wow the best advice i've gotten oh wow yeah i know these are even harder than the vaccine questions i got for you oh that's so much harder um <laughs> i guess if it's i guess i'd have to say if it's important enough you will make the time for it mm. priorities i think yeah i think that that is um some of the best advice i've gotten that's fair that's fair all right. So, I mean, I, I could just, you know, ask random questions for the next hour, two hours. But, I, you know, you know, we have important things to get to here. Sure. Um, OK, so I guess just a little bit more about you, though. Um, what, what got you interested, I guess, in the topic of I don't know, whether it's like biological. Actually, what, what got you more interested in immunology itself? Um, well, a lot of the things that happened in my life are accidents. Um, so the the day I had to register for courses as a freshman at um, Cornell, actually like a, as a pre-freshman, I just graduated high school. Um, I wanted to take the intro biology um, courses initially, like all the freshmen do, you know, try, I was thinking I'd eat myself into it, but there were some complicated circumstances that I won't get into. And basically I had to wait a day before I could um, actually access the scheduling service. And I went to look at all of the intro bio classes and they were all full. And me not knowing that like those classes can like open up and people drop them and everything. I was like, well, okay, I guess I have to take, find something else to take. And I was looking through the course roster and the um, immunology seminar for undergraduates, it was like targeted at juniors and seniors. Uh, it was open and it didn't have any formal prerequisites. So I was like, you know what, let's do that one. That one sounds like a good idea. Um, <laughs> And then on the first day, it, it turned out I was the only freshman in that class, um, <laughs> yeah, which was interesting. 
but it turned out to be a really, really fascinating class. And I really, really liked um, the lecturers for it. They, the way they organized it was um, they had different people from the department each teach the part of the course that they were specialists in. Uh, so the first part of like, like where we covered innate immunity was taught um, by um, the by um, Professor Leifer, and she is um, one. She was an incredible mentor. I actually was was in her lab, um, and I owe so so much to her. But um, she did an amazing job explaining innate immunity, and I stayed after class to ask her questions. And she told me that uh, I seem to really have a knack and an interest for the subject. So she was like, "Next semester, I'm teaching a graduate seminar. You should take that." And I'm just like, okay, uh, not really knowing what I'd gotten myself into. Um, and it was really intense because I didn't really have any experience at that point reading primary literature. And <laughs> here I was. Um, so it met on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And each day we had like four papers that we had to cover, four like brand new current papers with like all the new methods and everything. Um, and it was really, really intense for me. It, it took me like 40 hours to get through them in the beginning. It, was, it, it took so, so much work. Uh, and um, it was a little weird too, because I was much younger than everyone else. And at that point, I couldn't drink legally. So hmm. the way that it worked, um, the next semester I actually took the department journal club and that was like even more relaxed, but basically um, they had people present papers on like their favorite topics and uh, it was really neat. And they all brought snacks and goodies and everyone for the conference room, but they also had beer and I was not allowed to drink the beer because I was underage. So everyone around me was like having this grand old time, you know, like <laughs> and I'm just sitting there with my diet soda, like, all right. <laughs> all right. I guess we're going to the method section next. <laughs> yeah, no, it's funny. So I used to work in a lab and, um, mm -hmm. yeah, I think, I think there's a big misconception, I think from like people who are not in, uh, academics or like research they think that like you know research comes out and a paper comes out and people are like oh this paper every we believe everything in this paper it's perfect oh, it's like no actually we just we sit around and and crush people we trash it we trash them <laughs> exactly. we say figure it's terrible right. we talk about how ugly their western plots are it's just yeah we're yeah. not nice so, to people's papers exactly I mean, yeah, um, um, it's it's all for the pursuit of knowledge. So I think, you know, first meant dispelled is that, you know, uh, the people who are into research are really into, um, you know, really getting to the heart of, of data and, and really assessing it intensely. Um, mm -hmm. So I guess what what made you get into, I guess, starting like this, this blog, Deplatform Disease, or talking about, you know, vaccinations at all? Um. So I've been doing the vaccine hesitancy thing for a couple of years before I started um, the blog, Deplatform Disease. Um, it was kind of just like a hobby, I guess. I don't know. Um, Anti-vaccine thought always seemed kind of fringe to me. And uh, I was thinking about like going to medical school and applying. And they were like, how do you plan to stay current on medical literature? And I thought about like lazy ways I could do that. So I remember I liked like the CDC's page on uh, social media or whatever. And I always liked their little updates to, like, that remind me, like, to get my flu shot or, like, that remind me that, like, pregnant people need the DTaP vaccine and everything. But I looked through the comments and it was just incredible. It, like, people just came out in droves to spread misinformation about vaccines. And it wasn't even just misinformation. It was, like, really kind of gross and harmful misinformation, like, things that, like, like threats that the DTaP vaccine would cause miscarriages in pregnant people, which is a horrific thing to say to anyone. Um, 
And I thought about it and I just kind of realized like, I can't really let that misinformation go unchallenged. And I started trying to politely engage those people, um, you know, present them with information. But the problem is that the problem with those people isn't that there's a deficiency of facts there. Um, so then I got invited into this Facebook group that was um, focused on vaccines, basically focused on discussing them. Uh, and it had some professional scientists there, some physicians. It's a, a, it was a really cool group. And uh, I started to get more and more into it. And I started to actually like read more papers about vaccines specifically because I mean, I worked on macrophages and innate immunity. It wasn't really like focused on vaccines, but the more I got into it, the more uh, interested I became in the subject. Uh, I got myself a copy of Plotkin's uh, vaccines textbook, which is like this gigantic um, text on like everything that anyone could ever want to know about vaccines started going through that in my free time. Um, <laughs> and basically what ended up happening was as I was in this fa Facebook group, it was the same few questions over and over again. It was people not really understanding how to read the package insert, which I mean, I don't really know why they would need to read the package insert. They, there's like this perception that the pharmaceutical companies who um, write the package insert are like hiding things that you can only find on the package insert that they write. It never made much sense to me. Anyway, um, it was always like concerns that the vaccine would affect fertility or concerns that the vaccine could cause cancer. Like um, really just things that didn't have a good basis. And I kind of just found myself repeating myself over and over again. You know, I was like, you know what? I'm really, really tired of like just typing out the same exact response over and over again. Maybe I should uh, figure out a way to make this process more efficient. So then I started saving um, my responses to my notes on my phone so I could just copy paste them neatly. <laughs> right. um, and that helped a little bit. Um, and then uh, there, are, there are actually, I, I don't run the only vaccine type blog. Um, Skeptical Raptor, for example, has an excellent one. Uh, but they're not very nice to anti-vaxxers. Uh, they're not very charitable in their language to them. So um, some people do find it a little bit off-putting. Uh, mm. There's also Vaxipedia, which is run by a pediatrician, Vincent Ianelli, which is absolutely fantastic. It has really short, digestible, bite-sized articles with um, citations for all of its claims. It does an incredible job. Um, and I felt like uh, I liked all of theirs, but I felt like I had a slightly different style to it. I, um, I've been told my blog is very nerdy, um, basically. I've seen uh, really... it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's no joke. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, think, I think it's really good to debunk misinformation, basically, um, not just for the benefit of the person who is perhaps spreading the misinformation, uh, in, in fact, largely not for their benefit, because if they're the one spreading it, if they're really into that kind of mindset, you're pro nothing you do is probably gonna be able to convince them. But if you engage them publicly, it's kind of like it in itself a vaccine against misinformation. You're presenting that good information so that people who would have encountered the misinformation that would have otherwise been unopposed are no longer susceptible to falling for it because you debunked it for them. Um, and I thought about how I could make this process more effective. Because the thing is, what usually ended up happening in these vaccine groups that I was in was you would debunk one thing for one person. And they were like, okay, I don't believe that. But here are seven other false things that I'm not sure what to make of. Can you tell me about this? Uh, and I was thinking, how do I speed that up, right? Like, how do I make them see that if this thing is false, this source is unreliable and you shouldn't trust what it has to say? So I really try to give people the why underneath everything. I try to break it down as much as possible to an accessible level for someone who might be interested in the subject, but 
not oversimplifying it. I really try to like live live up to that quote that things should be as simple as possible, but no simpler. That's really my um, philosophy for those posts. All right. So now I, f- I feel like just with, without further ado, we should just we should we should crack into the uh, the meat. Okay. So let me let me just set the stage really quick here. Um, so coronavirus in the U- United States uh, essentially continues to rip through our nation. Okay. Uh, we're now around 16 million cases and almost at 300,000 deaths from the virus. Um, But there is, in some people's eyes, hope. Um, On December 11th, the FDA issued the first uh, emergency use authorization uh, for a vaccine uh, from Pfizer um, that purports to essentially prevent um, COVID-19 infection. Um, Some people are excited and there are many skeptics about this vaccine. Um, I guess, can you give us a a foundation um, for, I guess, um, I want to say, I guess there's been a lot of language around like conventional versus next gen vaccines. Mm -hmm. Um, I guess, can you give us a foundation for how this vaccine is next generation and what what old vaccines look like? Yeah, sure. Um, So, in general, um, you can group all vaccines into two types. So firstly, we have the live attenuated vaccines. So these are vaccines that have some kind of functional replicating pathogen in them that has been adapted to grow poorly in the conditions of the human body. So for example, there's a nasal spray flu vaccine that you can get uh, that has living replicating flu viruses in it, but they're adapted to grow at temperatures colder than what's in the human body. So they're not capable of causing sickness. Uh, Another vaccine in that category would be the MMR vaccine and uh, the childhood varicella vaccine for chickenpox. So this is one really great, really effective strategy. Um, In general, live attenuated vaccines work incredibly well. But the problem with them, really there are two. So the first thing is, depending on how immunocompromised the person is, it is not safe to give them a live attenuated vaccine because even though a normal healthy immune system could quash that infection before you get any kind of serious disease in someone whose immune system doesn't work properly, you can, they can undergo, uh, the virus can undergo what's called a reversion to virulence, which is where mm-hmm. they regain their ability to cause disease basically as they continue to mutate and replicate inside the host. Um, and that's not really an issue um, for most vaccines. It can be a problem with the oral polio vaccine, though. Um, so if uptake of the oral polio vaccine in a population isn't high enough, we do occasionally see that the virus uh, reverts to virulence and can cause paralytic polio. It happens in about one in every 2.7 million doses. And the oral polio vaccine is actually being replaced with this newer generation oral polio vaccine that cannot undergo reversion to virulence because it's been engineered with some additional mutations. Hmm. So uh, that's the live attenuated vaccines. Um, In addition to that, we have so-called inviable vaccines. So these are um, vaccines that have no functional pathogen and no ability to replicate at all. So there are a couple of things that you can do. Um, These get more granular. So one thing you can do is just to inactivate the virus. Um, So you can do that with heat. You can do that with radiation, UV radiation, like from the sun. You can do that with a dilute solution of formaldehyde called formalin, and it's perfectly safe. Um, And really, most of our vaccines are like this. And these are actually safe to give to immunocompromised people for the most part, 
It's just they don't always respond as well as someone who is immunologically competent. So um, that's the non-viable vaccine. So again, you can kill whatever causes the disease as long as the structure of the virus is roughly the same after that process. Because, you know, if you're heating it, you can damage it potentially or um, doing any of these other interventions. You should still have a very effective vaccine. Right. Uh, and uh, in fact, the injectable polio vaccine, which is what we use in the U.S., uh, works very, very well. And it's an inactivated vaccine. It has about 90% efficacy. Um, in addition to that, sometimes that's just not a very practical approach. Sometimes it's just more efficient to take the parts of the virus or the bacteria that the immune system responds to and uh, give those in a purified form. Uh, so that's called, um, you can give those uh, in the form of a virus-like particle, which is basically like the shell of a virus. You take out its genome and it just has a little membrane and it has the protein sticking out. So that's like the hepatitis B vaccine that mm -hmm. gets given at birth to children. And the HPV vaccine is also like this. These vaccines also work very, very well. And you, you also have so-called toxoids, which are inactivated toxins. So for example, tetanus makes a toxin that is so, so potent that it can cause death at concentrations less than what your immune system is capable of recognizing. So to deal with that, what we do is we give people an inactivated form of the tetanus toxin, the tetanus toxoid, and it generates high levels of antibodies against the toxoid that continue to circulate throughout the body. So that if you get an open wound and you get exposed to the toxin, the antibodies will bind it and neutralize it and prevent it from ever causing disease, which is why tetanus vaccines are so important and everyone should really be up to date on them. Uh, and let's see. Um, so then we got a little bit more fancy. So in, I think it was 2016, uh, we developed an Ebola vaccine. And the Ebola vaccine uh, is a viable vaccine, but it doesn't have any actual Ebola in it because that would be crazy dangerous. Uh, what, what was done instead was we took a non-pathogenic virus called VSV, uh, vesicular stomatitis virus, uh, which is a really important virus um, for experimental purposes. We did a, a lot of really cool cell biology research on it, just like a fun fact for you people. And basically we stuck... Um, one of Ebola's glycoproteins on its surface. So to the immune system, it looks just like Ebola, but it doesn't have any ability to cause the disease of Ebola. And this vaccine is nearly 100% effective, which is amazing. Uh, so that has been an, an idea for some of the vaccines for SARS-CoV-2, uh, which mm -hmm. is the virus that causes COVID-19. Uh, another concept that has been floating around for a while um, since about 1989 is the mRNA vaccines. Uh, these really haven't gained much steam until recently because mRNA is incredibly difficult to work with uh, from the research side of things. It's an extremely fragile molecule. It will degrade if you even look at it funny. Like I, I actually, um, before I worked in immunology, I was in a structural biology lab that worked with RNA and the precautions you had to take, it was unbelievable. We had to add this special chemical into all of our water called DEPC. Uh, and the point of that is that in addition to RNA just being super, super fragile, there are enzymes everywhere called RNases, which destroy the RNA. And the DEPC stops those from working. Um, and we couldn't heat it. Everything had to be at minus 80 Celsius. It was just, it's incredibly difficult. But hmm. the thing about RNA is you can make huge amounts of it very, very quickly. Like you can probably immunize the entire world with an mRNA vaccine with just a few kilograms of it. You would have enough to vaccinate every single person on the planet. 
Um, so that's really why people really like that idea for a pandemic because you can scale production up so, so quickly with a vaccine like that. Huh. Now, I guess, you know, one of the, so, so I guess I'll just, you know, state that the, the Pfizer vaccine is, it's an mRNA based vaccine and mm-hmm. that's the one that's being rolled out. I think some of the trucks just left this morning to, to go. Yeah, I just read from Michigan. Yep. From right. Kansas, I think. So, uh, you know, that's the one that, you know, if, if, people are going to get a vaccine that would be the one that's in uh, closest proximity to them um there are some concerns about this one um i guess some of the questions i've got you know uh one start with uh well you know is there some concern that the mrna that is from that is getting injected to them via this vaccine will it incorporate into their dna or you know what's going to happen when it sits in the cells you know should we be concerned about some of these other effects from, from mRNA? So um, as I said, mRNA is a very, very wimpy molecule. Um, mm-hmm. It really doesn't survive long. Um, the, the best analogy I've heard to help people understand mRNA is that it's like a Snapchat message, like sent from the DNA. So um, basically, <laughs> no, no, hear me out. So, no, I like that. I like that. <laughs> Yeah, um, I think, I, I believe that Shane Crotty, he's a big vaccinologist. He came up with that. I saw it on his Twitter. I, I don't know if it was his ideas first, but he's the person I saw it from. Um, so basically what happens once the mRNA gets in your cell is it contains instructions to make, in the case of the Pfizer vaccine, the spike protein from SARS-CoV-2, um, which is the virus, again, that caused COVID-19. And basically once it does that, you have a really, really intricate network of enzymes that will destroy the RNA. It is the, that's really been a really big hurdle uh, in the pharmacology of RNA. It has a lot of potential, but the problem is we can't get it to sit in cells long enough to do the things that we want it to do. And it's taken decades for us to figure out how to make it last even a couple of hours inside the cell. Mm-hmm. So basically, once the mRNA is in there, it lasts at most a few hours and then it is gone. Uh, as for the potential for it to get into the DNA and, uh, and affect your genome or anything like that, there's just absolutely no chance of that. Um, the DNA is housed in a special part of the cell called the nucleus, and the mRNA doesn't go anywhere near it. It acts entirely within this other compartment called the cytoplasm, which is where all the other organelles are housed, and um, it gets destroyed in a matter of a few hours it, there's absolutely no potential here for any kind of genetic anomalies. Hmm. So it almost seems like you're, I guess the concern really with these vaccines has been, you know, we haven't been able to stabilize mRNA long enough for it to, to do its work as opposed to it hanging around the cell and causing havoc in, in people's, you know, DNA. Yeah. So actually um, there are DNA vaccines. There aren't any in routine use, but DNA is a really attractive candidate for a vaccine because DNA is very, very stable under a range of temperatures and it's a lot harder to degrade. So if you can imagine like in lower and middle income countries, DNA vaccines are a really attractive option because they're easy to store. The big problem though, is they don't seem to work very well. With RNA vaccines, it's kind Mm -hmm. of in the opposite. There's some data that suggests that they work very, very well, but they are so, so difficult to store. So until basically now, it hasn't been practical or worthwhile to consider how to get around that. But because you can make RNA so quickly, there was incentive to get it done on a large scale. Right. Um, so a lot of people, I guess, I, I think you, I think you, you know, pretty 
well explained the ability to quickly scale up these mRNA vaccines. Because I think a lot of people, you know, one of the big concerns I always hear is it's rushed. You know, there's these other vaccines took years to produce. Um, This mRNA vaccine just came out of nowhere. Uh, You know, why don't we have, how do we develop a vaccine for COVID-19 when we still have, you know, people dying from diabetes or cancer? Um, is there anything you guys you could add to how, I guess, what contributed to how quickly the vaccine was able to be, you know, scaled up and produced? So um, Peter Hotez has, has really um, has done some really great communication on this point. Uh, basically, the the perception for the public is this is a vaccine that we have made in four months. This is not a vaccine that we made in four months. This is this vaccine is the result of seventeen years of really really intense research. We've really been trying to get coronavirus vaccines since SARS appeared in 2003. Uh, And we've been able to uncover some really incredibly detailed things about coronaviruses that uh, told us exactly what we needed uh, to be able to make an effective vaccine. So for example, we have, there's a large body of prior research that shows that if you give animals antibodies to spike proteins for coronaviruses, they are protected from disease. So we already knew what the right target was. Right. On top of that, um, the Barrick lab at UNC is a coronavirus lab. They're uh, really big experts there. And I believe it was Dr. Kismikia Corbett who is on, uh, who helps lead the Moderna initiative uh, for the vaccine. She was on a paper that showed that there is a specific mutation that can occur in the spike protein that makes it better exposed for antibodies. And every RNA vaccine has been engineered to have this mutation to make it more effective. So already before SARS-CoV-2, before COVID-19 even appeared, we had a lot of information about how to go about designing an effective vaccine to really an incredible level of detail to know down to what mutations we need to engineer into the um, sequence of the protein. Um, And on top of that, this really uh, reflects uh, a really big technological progress. The sequence of SARS-CoV-2 was published in January. Because of all this information, it was enough to be able to make the mRNA vaccine in, and design it in three days. That is really, really huge technical progress. The other side to that that most people are probably not as aware of, and certainly I wasn't and I wouldn't be unless I had friends who worked in clinical trials, is just how much of the process of making a vaccine is a bunch of documents sitting in a locked room with people doing nothing. Um, Because this is the thing about clinical trials. One of the reasons they take so long, so for one thing, um, they're really big investments from pharmaceutical companies in terms of money. And the pharmaceutical company is not going to invest the millions and millions of dollars into a vaccine that they don't have confidence in. So there's a really like stringent hierarchy of like, you have your phase one study, then you do phase two, then if that looks okay, you can go to phase three. And of course you have regulatory agencies like the FDA authorizing you going to, from each phase, but really there's not a whole lot of information that you get from phase two uh, compared with phase one. So you could really skip it from a science perspective. It doesn't really tell you that much useful because it's only phase one studies are, have like a few 10 or so people like 50 maybe. And this is where you're trying to make sure that the vaccine is safe in the short term that like people don't have acute reactions. This is where you figure out the dose. And in phase two, it's basically the same thing, but with more people. Mm -hmm. And that's really always just been about making the pharmaceutical companies more willing to invest the money into it. So from a science perspective, it's not needed. 
So a lot of companies, what they did was they did a combined phase one, two study, and they just had more people. And the other thing is, even for a very small study of a pharmaceutical, it can take a very, very long time to just recruit the participants for your study. In a pandemic, when everybody wanted to be in a vaccine trial, that's really not an issue. So you were able to recruit people very, very quickly. And the other side to that is ordinarily, people getting sick from infectious disease is a quote unquote, relatively rare event, which is part of the reason why vaccine trials and phase three, the efficacy trials have to have these ridiculous 40,000 or so people. That's mm-hmm. a gigantic clinical trial. You know, um, For drugs, you wouldn't see anything close to that. In phase three, you might get a few thousand. But for vaccines, because the people getting sick is a relatively rare thing, you have to have these huge numbers. And the thing about the pandemic being as out of control as it is, is people got sick quickly enough that you could see very quickly whether or not this vaccine actually works to protect people against COVID-19. So it's really, it really wasn't rushed. I think that that's really the wrong word. There were steps taken in the regulatory process to expedite it because it's so badly needed. But I really think that saying that these vaccines were rushed is not correct. Right, right. Um, hmm. So, well, we just went through we just went through a lot there. Um, so I guess you, you mentioned one thing, and this is just, you know, I don't really like talking conspiratorial theories out there, but I feel like they just have to be addressed because, you know, people get their information from lots of different places. Um, there was this... I was just talking to a friend casually about, you know, vaccines and whatnot. And she was like, yeah, I did hear that, you know, this was kind of brewed up in like a Chinese lab and, you know, and that's how it got spread. But you did mention that uh, very early on that the actual sequence for the spike protein was released. Not um, just the spike protein, the entire genome. Right. And I think, was that from researchers from like early infections in China? Yeah, they took uh, viruses from patients and isolated them and then sequenced them. Uh, and that's how they found out it was a coronavirus, actually. And, oh, right. And then they released that to essentially the wider science community. Yeah, they immediately released that in January to the public so that we could start working on a vaccine as quickly as possible. Right. Yeah. Which doesn't really sound like something that a, um, I guess, a country that was trying to create a biological weapon would do if they were trying to harm everyone else. (laughs) Yeah. I think that those conspiracies have been really, really harmful. And I think to be honest, that there are political actors who are trying to stoke those conspiracies to distract from the blame and failures of their own response to the pandemic. Um, But I mean, there are papers going back to 2005 that warn that the way that people interact in wild, with wildlife in certain parts of the world pose significant risks for pandemic level threats, not just coronaviruses, but even like farming and flu. Um, there are there are really serious risks from that because uh, flu viruses, we have them every season, so we're kind of used to them. And we don't really think that they're a big deal. But there are strains of the flu that have a 60% fatality rate. Hmm. And these are these are bird flus, and they are not good at infecting people. But the thing about the flu, uh, not to get sidetracked here, is that flu is really, really good at mutating in a way that coronaviruses aren't. And when you have farms where you have birds, and in particular pigs, you can have different flu viruses recombined. So the concern is always that you could get a flu virus that combines the lethality of an avian flu, which is extraordinarily high, 
with the easy transmissibility of our seasonal flus, uh, which every year infect millions of people. Hmm. So it's really, really, it was entirely predictable that, that a, pandem- a pandemic would happen. It wasn't clear whether it would be a flu virus or a coronavirus or any other virus for that matter. That's not information that we have in advance, but this is not the first pandemic and it will definitely not be the last pandemic. And there are a lot of risk factors from human behaviors that mean that there will be more and we have to be better prepared. We have to be ready for it. We need funding into that research. Right. Right. Um, and I think too, I mean, I think that goes along with what you're saying, which is how quickly, um, you know, we were able to get the the vaccine out, mm-hmm. you know, when the whole world's watching and, you know, you have almost 300,000 people dead, you know, you really have to money, like, you know, you have to get the gears going uh, to, to make sure that, you know, we're on track to at least doing the research to, to get a vaccine out. Um, so things. Yeah. I really think um, despite all the criticism I could offer about the coronavirus response, and I have a lot of it, (laughs) I think that you would not be alone. (laughs) I think that the decision to subsidize pharmaceutical companies and allow them to manufacture the vaccine at risk at financial risk was a very, very smart choice. Um, And I think that there needs to be continued emergency funding for such a circumstance should it arise in the future. Right. Um, so I want to stay on safety for just a quick bit here. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there is, I guess, are there lingering questions about safety, whether that's like, you know, what is what's in a vaccine that, that could cause harm or, you know, do we know how long people even have immunity for, you know, if they were to get vaccinated? Well, so from the components of the vaccine, you can look at the entire list of ingredients from the Pfizer vaccine. I can actually go through it. Um, It's really not a secret. They've published it. So first things first, you have the mRNA. mRNA, it just contains the the instructions to make the spike protein. For Moderna, it's not even the whole spike protein. It's just that little piece of it that touches are uh, ACE2 proteins. So really no possibility of harm from that. Right. Um, and then the to, I'm going to yeah. half cut and just, just to say that um, uh, as long as people know that like, you know, I guess the spike protein is the, you know, is the important piece that connects to the ACE2 receptor and the ACE2 receptor. Those receptors are sitting in our lungs and that's essentially how the back, I mean, the, uh, the virus gains access to, to our lungs and causes infection. Um, yeah, it's like it's kind of like a lock and a key. The key is the spike protein, and the lock is the ACE2 receptor. And when they attach, they get unlocked, and the virus gets into the cell. Okay, I just wanted to quickly, but keep going. Go yeah, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> um. So the thing is, because as we talked about, mRNA is extremely fragile. You have to put it in this little shell of fat, basically, to shield it from the world. Hmm. So that shell of fat, it has. It's made out of some lipids. I can read you their names. They are long, complicated, ugly names with numbers on them. Um, so that really shouldn't be alarming. Right. Um, there's an agency called the International Union of Pure and Applied Chemistry that assigns all these names to different molecules. And the reason that they give them these crazy names with numbers in them is because you can tell from the name what that molecule looks like exactly. Uh, okay. Um, and that's really useful information for um, depending on who you are. Like if you even take something like glucose, right? Glucose is 
our major source of energy throughout the body. It's a sugar that we all make. The IUPAC name for glucose is 2R3S, 4R, 5R, 2, 3, 4, 5 pentahydroxyhexanol. Like, you know, it's, it's just, it's silly. Like I, there was this trend recently about like how <laughs> you, you shouldn't buy anything, anything that contains ingredients you can't pronounce. Like you could write any ingredient in a way that it would be hard to pronounce, so to speak, you know? So I just like, I just really think that's bad advice and that's just plain chemophobia. Um, yeah. 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 Like whether your ability to pronounce what a thing is has nothing to do with how toxic it is. Um, the, the one thing that I do want to mention about this lipid nanoparticle. So the two people who had anaphylactoid reactions to the vaccine, it's not entirely clear what it was to, what component it was, uh, that triggered that, but it's, it looks likely that it's this one piece of the nanoparticle called PEG 2000. Uh, and PEG 2000 is just like, uh, it's a really, really common food additive. You can find it in cosmetics. It's really everywhere. Allergies to PEG are really, really rare. I think, let me just check. So in, since 2005, um, there have been less than 10 reports to the FDA of anaphylaxis from it. So these two cases of anaphylaxis, they, we should be keeping an eye on them. We should figure out what actually caused them, but I really am not worried about them. Yeah. Um, there was, there was some report about, uh, four people who got Bell's palsy. I yeah. I did. That was in the FDA document. And that is something that we can continue to watch in post-marketing surveillance. But really, there isn't a plausible mechanism I can think of by which the vaccine could do that. And it doesn't differ from the background rate of Bell's palsy. Exactly. So we can keep watching <laughs> it. Um, but in all likelihood, this was just like random event shenanigans. Like this is the, the thing about clinical trials. They're more sterile than the real world, but they're also happening in the real world. It's not like you get people into a clinical trial and now they're in an isolated bubble and only things that are related to them being in the clinical trial happen. Like there were also six people in the clinical trial for Pfizer's vaccine who died, four were in the placebo group, two were in the vaccine group. What do they die of? Well, someone had a heart attack. Uh, actually, two people had heart attacks. Someone had a stroke. Um, someone else, I think there was another heart attack. They called one death arterial due to arteriosclerosis. Um, I'm not sure what that means in detail. That probably just means that whoever filled out the death certificate was lazy um, and didn't write like heart attack or stroke. Uh, and then there were two deaths in the placebo group that we don't have details on, but they occurred in younger patients. But this is the thing, like when you have a trial with especially older people, some people will die and it could have nothing to do with the vaccine. And these events do get investigated by not just the FDA, but there's a, an entire data safety monitoring board that is completely separate from both the pharmaceutical company and the FDA that examines all of these things and makes judgments about whether or not you can go into the next phase of the clinical trial. So right now, by every indication, I think that this is a safe vaccine. I don't think that there's any evidence that this is not a, this is a vaccine that people should avoid. And frankly, if I were next in line, if the higher risk people were all taken care of before me, I would accept this in a heartbeat. Yeah, yeah. Um, full disclosure, I work at the VA for some part of my time and I've already pre-registered for the vaccine. Oh, that's um, wonderful. Yeah, so I'm actually pretty excited. <laughs> um, so actually, so it's interesting. So you mentioned a lot of different um, I guess, regulatory agencies. And, mm -hmm. it, and it sort of takes me back to this like larger idea of trust. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I was listening to like lots of different podcasts and preparing for this and like, you know, trying to read up on it. And some of it, you know, some of it really is like, you know, 
I could spend all the time in the world telling you about like all these regulatory agencies, like phase one, two, and three trials, the 43,000 people who were enrolled and, you know, and the rigor that it takes to get these drugs approved. But some of this is trust, you know, and, and I think a lot of people, you know, whether it was like, you know, um, our response to COVID-19, you know, eroded their trust or like, you know, at least people in my, like the African-American community looking back at like, you know, the Tuskegee syphilis experiment or like hundreds of years of the devaluation of black lives. Um, there's just been this huge erosion of public trust. Um, Absolutely. I guess, I don't know. I, I don't know if that's a question. Like, how, how do you, how do you speak to people about that? Or like, do you try to engender people, you know, a little more trust in, in our I think you do it through a lot of microscopic efforts and you get the right ambassadors. I, I am happy to answer absolutely any questions anyone has about this vaccine. If I don't know, I will tell you and then I will talk to a person who knows better than me and I will get back to you with the answer. But the point is, I have my lived experience and they are not going to be the same as a person of colors in this country. I can't fully ever understand what that's like. And I think that we need the right ambassadors. We need physicians and scientists, people of color doing outreach in these communities, explaining how they know that it's safe. And I, I feel really bad placing that burden on them on top of everything. And I think that I worry about tokenism in that circumstance, but I don't really see a way around. I also think religious leaders um, could play a role here, uh, right. pastors, for example. Um, but the other thing I think is that in general, there's this thing in va about vaccine uptake in that it's normative. Um, people do it because it's the norm. It's the thing that everybody does. So I think that as more people get the vaccine and are totally fine, more people will be spurred to get it because the alternative to the vaccine is COVID. <laughs> and um, I, I mean, it's pretty bad. I, I'm sorry to say that bluntly, but that's that's what it is, right. right? It's either you get this thing, you're protected against COVID, or you don't get it, and eventually it will get you. Right. Um, and I think I really, really worry in particular about people of color regarding this vaccine, because on top of their dramatically increased risk of acquiring this infection and their risk for complications, if on top of that they refuse the salvation of a vaccine, it would just even further heighten the health disparities that we're seeing. And it would just be unimaginably cruel um, and ironic and terrible. So I really, I really, really think that efforts by the media should be focusing on people of color doing outreach to people in those communities and many, many microscopic efforts, many local efforts from trusted figures within those communities. Right, right. Because, you know, if you can't trust in necessarily the government directly it's like you just got to trust in you know someone from your community who does trust in um, the government yeah. um, i'm actually going to link a piece in this from uh, dr kimberly manning she wrote a piece that got accepted or printed in the lancet it's called mm -hmm. essentially more than medical mistrust and she you know is an awesome clinical educator works at grady but she talks about like how she went to tuskegee university um but then also participated in phase three trials and just sort of talks about the war that sort of went between in, in her own head, you know, as she thought about 400 years of like devaluation to now, you know, putting herself 
you know, really in phase three trials, which really at that point, you know, it's really just efficacy. Um, she's doing fine. <laughs> you know, she, she did well getting the vaccine. Um, okay. So, hmm, where, so I guess another thing is I, we haven't talked really about like, uh, is, is the vaccine actually efficacious? Um, mm-hmm. You know, and like, I remember before Fauci was saying that he would accept the vaccine that was 50% efficacious. And, but then now they're saying this was 95%. You know, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Is it actually like, do we, do we believe this stuff? Uh, well, I definitely do believe it. So <laughs> first I want to, I want to talk a little bit about why Dr. Fauci put the number 50% out there, because that definitely, especially right now seems very low to a lot of people. So the thing about, SARS-CoV-2 is, um, in general, we think about it as a respiratory virus. And the problem there is it is very, very difficult to make effective vaccines against respiratory viruses. And part of the reason for that is just um, the immune system within the respiratory tract, it behaves a little bit differently than the immune system in the rest of the body. Um, You really need inflammation to be able to support productive immune responses. But the problem is your respiratory tract is very, very bad at tolerating any kind of inflammation because that makes it hard to breathe and breathing is kind of very important. Um, So that is really the reason. Based on something like flu, our flu vaccines, the efficacy, um, I shouldn't say efficacy, the effectiveness in most years is somewhere around 40 to 60% at preventing flu. Now, um, that doesn't mean that they don't have other benefits. The flu vaccines consistently show that people who get them uh, tend to not end up in the ICU. They reduce your risk of heart attack, which, by the way, having a flu raises your risk of heart attack by six times. Mm. Um, So it's really not a joke. Uh, So that 50% number is based on the fact that with respiratory viruses, it's not typical to have an extremely effective vaccine. Of course, There's a counterpoint to that, and that's the measles vaccine. The measles vaccine is an extraordinarily effective vaccine. It's one of our best. One dose is about 92% effective. The second dose brings that up to 97 to 99%. So it's really, really incredible. Um, And I think that by bracing ourselves for the worst case scenario, for saying, let's at least try for 50, that is a reasonable goal. We were preparing um, to essentially work with what was realistic. Um, So the thing is, though, even if a vaccine is only 50% effective, that doesn't mean that it's useless. That still adds up to tremendous public health benefits. If you look at the flu vaccine, every single year, it prevents millions of hospitalizations and tens of thousands of deaths. And that's in spite of the fact that it's only 40 to 60% effective at actually preventing flu. So 50% was a very reasonable number before we had information. Some people even said that that might be too high because it was probably more important that we get something out there and then we continue to refine it and make it better. So now we have this vaccine that's showing 95% efficacy. And what does that mean? So the way that you measure the efficacy of vaccine is you compare the risk of getting the disease for the unvaccinated group to the risk of getting it in the vaccinated group. So in this case, it was found that people who were unvaccinated were about 20 times more likely to get this disease than people who were in the vaccinated group. And one minus 120 is 0.95 or 95%. So that's where that comes from. Mm. Um, So the reason that I trust these numbers 
in addition to the fact, so firstly, when these first came out, people were all really mad that it was by press release. And I agree that it is not ideal to do science by press release, definitely not. But the thing is, the those numbers would not have been allowed to be released unless the data safety monitoring board had okayed it. And again, this is an independent body. It has no allegiance to the company. The pharmaceutical company has no allegiance to the FDA. The data safety monitoring board was the one who actually looked at the data, did the statistical analysis and said, yes, this vaccine works. So from that moment, as soon as that press release came out, I really did believe that this was an effective vaccine. And at this point, we now have detailed data from the clinical trials from the FDA and from that special committee in the FDA, the advisory committee called uh, BIRPAC, that's the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee. Um, so I really do not think that there is any question that this is an effective, vac an eff efficacious vaccine. The question right now, there are two really, is how long is it efficacious for? How long does it protect people? And there isn't any easy way to answer that. The only way to know that rigorously really is to wait until people who got the vaccine start getting COVID-19 again. Um, and the other thing is we don't know how well this vaccine interrupts transmission yet. So the worst case scenario right now with respect to transmission is that people get this vaccine and they don't develop COVID-19, any overt disease, but they all become asymptomatic carriers, which is why for some time, even vaccinated people, even after the second dose, will still have to be wearing masks and taking all those public health precautions. That said, for a vaccine that shows this high a level of protection, I really doubt that we're going to have that worst case scenario of, night, of everyone becoming an asymptomatic carrier. Um, in addition, there was recently a study, um, a short little update from Moderna, which uh, is not Pfizer's vaccine, but the concept is very similar, where they show antibody levels for a period of 120 days after the vaccine. And after both doses, there's a little bit of a drop, which is absolutely what you would expect. But after that, they are stable and they are very, very stable for a very long time. So that is an excellent sign that the protection from this vaccine is probably long lasting. And that comes with some additional papers that show that protection from infection also seems to be pretty durable. So I feel like one thing that we did, I, maybe I, we glossed over this because, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's some assumption of knowledge base. Um, did we talk about how antibodies get made? <laughs> oh, no, we didn't. I, I guess not. I'm sorry about that. Um, all right. Well, uh, antibodies. <laughs> Well, when a B and a T cell love each other very much, okay, I'm kidding. Um, um, that, that was a very, very nerdy joke for anyone. Well, unfortunately, um, I, I'm a nerd, so I laugh. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, so antibodies are these Y-shaped proteins um, that do a lot of things. So um, basically, the way that this vaccine works, the concept for it is it's going to make you make a lot of antibodies that are directed against the spike protein. And they're going to recognize the spike protein. And essentially, they're going to put like a seal over it that keeps it from being able to enter cells. And in doing that, if the virus can't get into your cells, the virus can't cause disease. So that is the concept there. And the way that works is um, you have these cells called B cells, which are the cells that uh, make antibodies. And those B cells get instructions from uh, T cells and your T cells get instructions from 
these cells called antigen presenting cells. So what happens is when you actually get the mRNA vaccine, it gets taken up by an antigen presenting cell that starts itself making the spike protein or that, that fragment of a spike protein. Then it goes to your lymph node and finds a T cell and it says, hey, T cell, look at this really cool foreign thing I picked up that doesn't belong to the body. The T cell goes on to find a B cell and the B cells start uh, rapidly dividing and making tons and tons of antibody. That was good. That was good. So, so then I guess, you know, basically the, I'm just trying to like bring it all together for them. So basically right, right. <laughs> like you, they take a, a, I guess they get information via this MRNA um, that's mm-hmm. wrapped in a lipid molecule, which mm-hmm. you can look up online. It has a bunch of numbers associated with it. They inject that into you. It goes into your cell, interacts with the machinery to produce a spike protein, antigen presenting cells, you know, see that protein, um, and then essentially rev up your immune system to make antibodies and that will eventually hopefully neutralize uh, the, the infection. Yeah, so there's actually one other thing I wanna point out that makes it really tricky to figure out how long people are protected with this vaccine. So early on in the pandemic, there were reports that people were making antibodies and those antibodies were just dropping really, really quickly and people were going to lose their protection. Mm. That is really not how it works. Um, (laughs) So when you are challenged with an antigen of some kind, you will make a high level of antibodies, but once you've cleared it, you don't need all those antibodies anymore. The reason that you can get such a high level of antibodies is because you have this B cell and it divides and makes like a billion B cells and uh, eventually you don't need all those B cells. So those extra B cells start dying. And if they didn't do that, well, we'd all have lymphomas all the time. And also we'd be giant walking balls of lymph nodes, um, which would be uncomfortable. So the key point is as long as you have these so-called memory B cells, they can be rapidly recalled um, in response to an antigen that you've seen, like the spike protein. And they can be made to really quickly divide and make bunch, like lots and lots of antibody all over again. Uh, but the other part that's a little bit tricky about this is they, your antibody levels can drop to what is less than our lab equipment will be able to measure. Uh, and that ordinarily that would suggest that you have lost your protection, but we know from other vaccines that that is not necessarily true. Like for the hepatitis B vaccine, even though antibodies are gone, I think I think they last for about five years. People still appear to be protected for over 30 years. Mm. So it's very, very tricky to figure out exactly how durable a vaccine is. The best way to do it is to wait long enough for people who got the vaccine to start getting sick again, and then you tell everyone to come in for a booster. Right, yeah. Um, well... Can you tell me a little bit about herd immunity? I feel like um, there was this thought that, you know, maybe we could, maybe the solution to COVID-19 was for just to let the virus rip through, you know, the nation. And then uh, we would just gain herd immunity that way. What is it? And, you know, how can the vaccine help us get there? Well, so herd immunity, it's like you describe it. It's when a certain critical proportion of the population is immune to an infectious disease so that whenever you have a new case of that infectious disease come in, there aren't enough people who can get sick with it that it can spread and cause an epidemic. 
Um, so this has absolutely categorically never been done by way of infecting people. And it, I would consider it to be a crime, um, a human rights violation to attempt to do that deliberately. Uh, and it, there was actually a recent paper in the journal Science that looked at basically where they tried that um, in Brazil, in Manaus, and 66% of the population got sick and one in 500 people died from COVID-19. It was absolutely horrible. Um, and it's just not viable. And the reason for that is because every time you, you do this, every time you try and infect people and get it through the population as quickly as possible, you will have people who die, but then you will have people who are born. And then those people who are born are again susceptible. So the absolute only way to achieve herd immunity realistically and humanely is by way of a vaccine. And the amount of people that you need to vaccinate to get to this level depends on how communicable the disease is and how effective the vaccine is. So for COVID-19, it looks like if we could have a 100% effective vaccine, we would need to immunize about 70% of people to be able to stop transmission. But that number is tricky because the other thing to keep in mind about herd immunity is that it's a local phenomenon. So for example, if you look at measles vaccination rates in the country across the US, it's about 91%. And that sounds very high. And there are parts of the country where it even goes up to 100%, but then there are parts of the country where it's 40%. Those counties where it's 40%, they are very much at risk of a measles outbreak. They are vulnerable. If you have a neighborhood and 100% of people in the adjacent neighborhood have been vaccinated against COVID-19, but then in the, that neighborhood, only 20% of people have, they are still vulnerable. So it really is an, a question of equity um, and distributive justice as much as it is about preventing disease. Hmm. Yeah. Um, so I have some some random potpourri questions that uh, that just random things I've been hearing from people that you know maybe we could just you know rapid fire get into um, mm -hmm. and just just to make sure we've touched on some of these concerns. Um, so I kind of mentioned this before, but one of the questions is, you know, somehow there's a vaccine for COVID-19, but we don't have a cure for stuff like cancer or diabetes. Like, how is that possible? <laughs> well, whenever people ask me about a cure for cancer, my default response is, which That's one? right. Which <laughs> um, cancer is hundreds of different diseases, and they all have a few basic things in common but they are all fundamentally driven by very different processes. There are very different gene mutations at play. And you can actually do um, chemotherapy studies um, where you take someone's, a sample of someone's tumor and you try different combinations of chemotherapy to figure out which one works. Um, and each tumor is going to give you a different result because different kinds of chemotherapy work for different kinds of tumors. Um, I, 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 I try really hard not to see malice behind the question of like why we don't have a cure for cancer, but I know scientists who spend their entire careers studying, looking for ways to make cancer treatment better. And the suggestion that they're hiding something when like I see them fighting for grants tooth and nail and like mm -hmm. giving like giving up sleep, driving their graduate students, just like they're dedicating their whole lives to this. They know everything possible about this disease and it's not enough. And it just it makes me sad that people would think that they're they're not doing it out of for any reason other than because that's what they're interested in, that's what they love, because that that really is why they're doing it. Um, regarding 
and curing diabetes? Well, that's actually also kind of a loaded question because even though we talk about type one and type two diabetes, there are actually a bunch of different types of diabetes. Uh, type one diabetes, we generally think about as being from an autoimmune disease. And right now, the problem with all autoimmune diseases is there isn't a good way to target just the cells that are triggering the autoimmune disease and leave the rest of your immune system alone. Um, because they are the same cells, it's just they're specific to the wrong thing. So whenever someone figures out how to do that, there is a Nobel, Nobel Prize for them waiting without question. Um, but these are just fundamentally very different things. Like where, when we talk about like, why haven't we cured diabetes? Why haven't we cured cancer? Those are tons of different diseases. This is one. Right, right. One virus. It's pretty stable. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like it does yeah. not change. Yeah. Um, okay. The next one I have is, um, the threat of this particular illness. This is the reason why people would not take the vaccine. They say the threat of a particular, this particular illness does not warrant me taking the vaccine. It's not, it's not deadly enough. I know people who are my age. I'm 23. I know people who are my age who have had strokes from COVID-19. This disease is worth a vaccine. Enough said. Um, there, let's see. Um, the pressure to vaccinate is, is shady. Um, you know, why is, why are they pressuring me to, to take this? Why can't I just, why can't I just have choice? So vaccines are interesting because they sit at this weird intersection of being both medicine and being public health. It is in medicine in general, we give people a lot of leeway because it's their body, it's their choice. They are entitled to do with it whatever they feel is best. That much is true. But when you choose not to get a COVID-19 vaccine, it's as much about you as it is about everyone around you. You are leaving yourself susceptible. And you know, 95%, that's a great number, but that still means 5% of people will get it and they won't be protected. So you not getting it, you could get sick. You could pass that to someone else. That person can pass it to their grandparents who, for whom that could be a fatal infection. It's, there's pressure to do it because for one thing, people want their lives to go back to normal. Look at how much <laughs> one infectious disease has disrupted our daily life. I mean, we're wearing masks all the time, which we never used to do. We have, we're suddenly talking about essential workers. You know, we never used to think about these things. We, our economy is taking huge hits. I mean, it would have taken them regardless, but this one infectious disease has so disrupted our daily lives and there is a very clear way out. There's an exit strategy and it's for people to get their vaccines. That's why there's all this pressure. Yeah. Um, there were a couple other questions, but I feel like we hit on them. One of them was um, toxic and unethical ingredients. I feel like we we mostly talked about that. I don't know if you have anything um, to add. So I can, I can comment on that a little bit more. So um, the thing about mRNA vaccines that makes them really, really great is those claims really, really don't apply. Like there are some people who take issue with the use of certain cell lines, um, technically they're cell strains in the use of some vaccines because viruses don't replicate on their own. They need to be able to infect the cell to reproduce. So the problem with that is you need cells that can tolerate a lot of viral infections. And those cells typically have to be cells that uh, divide very effectively. So for some vaccines, those cells are now many generations removed from uh, fetus. Uh, usually these were fetuses that were donated after miscarriages or 
from elective abortions that would have happened anyway. Uh, with mRNA vaccines, you do not need any cells or anything of the sort. You literally just need the building blocks of the, the mRNA, the DNA sequence that the ribosome reads, and that's it. And you just have it go. Um, it works amazingly well. There, I can't think of anything in the process of making mRNA that someone could have an ethical objection to, regardless of whether they would consider themselves pro-life or vegan or anything of the sort. There's really nothing in here that that, that would apply for. Hmm. Um, so I feel like we've touched on a lot today. Um, I want to take us in a, a strange ending direction. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, as I was researching more about, I guess, vaccines, and I started hitting this research topic of vaccine hesitancy, um, mm -hmm. I got to this, the, the backfire effect, um, which mm -hmm. was concerning. Um, you know, I was reading this Atlantic article, it basically just said, uh, you know, I guess there's a, a tendency for people when they hear about, uh, get, when they get information about vaccines, how they're safe and blah, blah, blah. And in, in the end, it doesn't actually change their behavior to be more likely to get vaccines. In some cases, they can be less likely to take them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I guess I wonder, like, you know, does that, how do you approach trying to get someone um, to get a vaccine? Uh, and I, I guess I'll give you my, the scenario that I run into a lot as a clinician is I'm in the, you know, I, I'm in my clinic, you know, this person comes in with for a myriad of different issues. They have heart failure, renal disease. And then at the end of the, the visit, <laughs> at the end of the visit, there's health maintenance and it's, yearly time for the flu vaccine or you know they turn 65 and they need their pneumonia shot and i only got maybe five minutes <laughs> you know to try and get this person to take this vaccine um usually me giving them more information about it you know sometimes does not help so i wonder you know do you have a particular approach that that you take with people when you try to you know, tell them about vaccines or essentially get them to, to sign up for it? I think that in the span of a five-minute um, clinical encounter, it's probably not possible. But there <laughs> are um, things that can be done outside of that. Um, and that is from communication from trustworthy sources. So um, Voices for Vaccines actually is a fantastic nonprofit, and they have a toolkit on how to discuss vaccine hesitancy uh, and how to discuss vaccines with uh, people you care about. And basically, the big thing is, it's not about an argument. You don't want to push too hard. When you push too hard, people dig their heels in and they get stubborn and they only become more entrenched in that. You want to seriously hear their concerns, seriously consider them, uh, consider what validity they have and explain to them in language that they can understand uh, whether or not they're valid or what parts of them are valid, and also to be transparent about what we don't know yet. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So essentially just like, you know, I saw this like little tutorial from, I can't remember her name. I think it's, she's a PhD student. I think I saw it. It's oh like Santa Param um, or... I think I bookmarked it, I know, let me tell right? you. Yeah, but she just really laid out a really good approach that sort of started with like, you know, trying to find common ground with people and like, 
Her name, uh, I have it. Her name is Maria Sundara. She is a PhD no. infectious disease epidemiologist. Uh, she is a postdoc at uh, University of uh, Toronto School of Public Health, it looks like, and ICES Ontario. I'm not positive what that is because I'm not Canadian, <laughs> right. um, but you know, Canada wants to take me. I don't have any objections. <laughs> take me. Um, <laughs> so, doctors, I, I should excuse myself, Dr. Sundaparam, um, but she had a really great mm-hmm. uh, tutorial about it. Um, maybe I'll, she did, I'll link she to did it. an excellent job. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think you definitely should. Yeah. Um, so, you know, those are, I think, I think we hit on a lot. Th- those are really, that was, that was my, my list of, you know, rundown questions. I don't know. Do you have any final thoughts or things we didn't get to that you feel like people need to know? Hmm, that's hard. I guess if I could leave people with one thing, it's that, by all the evidence we have right now, the Pfizer vaccine is safe and effective. And when it comes to your turn in line, I really think you should get it. Short and simple. Um, so mm-hmm. where where can people uh, reach you if they if they want to sort of tap into your your mind and, and some of the the sources that you were mentioning? So uh, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at e Nirenberg, like my nice. name. Uh, I also have a blog on um, deplatform disease, and it has moderated comments, um, so you can leave me comments on those if you want. Um, but really, you can the easiest way to reach me is through my DMs. I have open DMs because I'm doing a lot of science communication. I really like hearing from people uh, and explaining some of the things that they might not get or have questions about. Nice, nice. Well, uh, we will be linking, you know, deplatform disease and a ton of different articles and links uh in the show notes so please check that out if you guys want want information and i just want to say thank you edward for coming on the show i really appreciate it my pleasure awesome okay so um (laughs) that's the show i hope you enjoyed it um if you made it this far Wow, I'm sure that was dense, heavy. Uh, Please check the show notes for more resources about vaccines, videos, info, everything you might need. Um, And you can always reach out to me on Twitter, at TypicallySilent. So this show has spurred you to get a vaccine. That's awesome. Uh, let me know and if you feel like it all the information totally bogged you down and pushed you away from vaccines um, let me know too Uh, I did reference in the show a piece by Dr. Manning in the Lancet journal and I just wanted to read the last um, paragraph that she had just because I you know I really I really think it's a great piece and um, it's a good way to close this this episode When I rolled up the sleeve of my non-dominant arm, I squeezed my eyes shut and braced myself. A syringe with either a new COVID-19 vaccine or placebo would soon plunge into my muscle. I didn't hear any sounds, but even behind closed eyelids and foggy glasses, I could see. This time it was faces I saw, some crying, some protesting, others unsuspecting and trusting. Some were lifeless, 
splashed with shoveled dirt from unmarked graves, or worse, unearthed and taken for dissection in medical schools. But then came the smiling faces waving at me from clinic, waiting rooms. The security officer giving me a fist bump through my car window at Grady Memorial Hospital. My sons lost in hugs with aging parents and the exuberant alumni crowd dancing in the marching band at Tuskegee University homecoming game. As the scent of the alcohol wafted into my nose and the needle grew closer, I told myself a final time, you don't have to do this. And because I know that I don't, I did. It is as much my right to consent as it is to refuse. On this day, I said yes.